The Old Testament reading for today comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. And the sermon text is Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Uh, the book of Daniel was written by Daniel in approximately 600 B.C. or thereabouts. Uh, long before the coming of Christ, you will undoubtedly see the connection between this text and the one we will be studying in the book of Revelation today. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold... And this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. It's there that we read the words of John. And as I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, as they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. 
everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the earth and of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the faith of the saints. So far the reading of God's most holy word. We do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. So you notice that here we have a transition in the book of Revelation, don't we? Chapter 12 focused upon the great dragon who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, to quote from Revelation 12, 9. He was identified as the primary spiritual opponent of God, the Christ, and of the people of God living upon the earth. His objective since the fall of man has been to devour God's people so as to consume God's Christ. And this he attempted to do. And this he thought he accomplished when Christ was crucified. But Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and was seated upon his heavenly throne. The dragon was then barred from heaven and was confined to the earth. And so John heard a heavenly voice saying, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Revelation 12, 12. And so what did the dragon do having been barred from heaven upon Christ's session? He immediately resumed his pursuit and persecution of God's people. Remember that he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, Revelation 12, 13. And he made war against the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12, 17. And God's promise to his people is that he will nourish them and preserve them spiritually through, though they will indeed experience warfare such as this in the world. Now that is what we learned in Revelation chapter 12, but clearly the focus shifts in chapter 13 away from the dragon to two beasts. John sees a vision of the first beast rising from the sea in 13.1, and in 13.11 he describes a beast that rises from the earth who does the bidding of the first beast. And so the shift in the book of Revelation is very obvious. We now move from a consideration of the dragon who represents Satan himself to a consideration of these two beasts, the one rising from the sea, the other rising from the earth. Uh, The shift is obvious, but I want to draw your attention briefly to the way in which chapters 12 and 13 are very much connected. Remember that chapter 12 concluded with these words, and he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. Can you picture it? Uh, There it is, uh, the dragon who symbolizes Satan. After he has begun to pursue the woman again, he stands on the sand of the sea. And then immediately we read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. When we come to 1311, we will hear John say, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. The the meaning is this. The dragon who symbolizes Satan himself is devoted to the pursuit and persecution of God's people in the world. He is committed to making war on the offspring of the woman, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is that? It is 
It is you and I. It is everyone throughout the history of the church who has ever professed faith in Christ. The, the dragon pursues them and makes war against them. But we are to recognize, and here is the new thing being revealed to us in chapter 13. The dragon will wage this war, not always in a direct way, but through these two beasts that are now being introduced to us. And so there he stands on the seashore, and he is summoning, as it were, the beast from the sea. Notice this beast looks like him. And also he will summon the beast from the land. Notice that this beast talks like him, so that they might do his bidding in the world to war against all who belong to God and to Christ. This is immensely helpful for you and I. So that we might understand how it is that the dragon pursues us. How it is that the dragon wages war against the people of God. He does not do it directly always. He does not appear to us in a terrifying form so that we might immediately recognize him. But he does it through things. He, he does it with the use of, of other entities. And that is what these two beasts of Revelation chapter 13 uh, symbolize uh, persons or entities that Satan uses in order to wage war against God's people. He is cunning, isn't he? He is deceptive. And when he wages war against the people of God, he does it in very cunning and deceptive ways. He is hidden behind uh, these two entities, as we will see. As we consider Rev Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and the two beasts that are contained uh, here, um, we will ask five questions, especially as it pertains to this first beast. First of all, when will this beast appear? When will this beast that rises out of the sea appear? Secondly, who or what does this beast symbolize? Thirdly, where does this beast exercise or, or have authority? Fourthly, what does this beast do exactly? And fifthly, why does this beast do what he does? And then after we have answered these questions, we will be well prepared to ask, how should this passage of Holy Scripture affect my life today? So, so when will this beast appear? That is the first question we must address. It's a very important one. And, and truthfully, it would probably be better for me to put the question this way, when did this beast appear? But if I put the question that way from the beginning, it would have tipped you off to the answer prematurely, wouldn't it? Um, have I, So I put it the other way at first. But when did this beast appear? That is the proper question. And the answer is that this beast, the beast that was seen rising out of the sea here in Revelation 13, 1, was active in the world even when John originally penned his letter to the seven churches who were alive in the first century A.D. Uh, this same beast is active in the world now and will be active in the world until the Lord returns. It is essential that we see this as the plain reading of the text of Revelation. Again, I must very briefly address the futurist view of the beast of Revelation 13, which is most popular today. The, the futurist, when asked, when will this beast appear, says what? Uh, they say, in the future, during the last three and a half years of human history before the Lord returns in judgment. So for them, they imagine this beast not present in the world today and certainly not present in the day in which John wrote his letter to those seven churches, but present only in the future. This beast will come, according to their uh, perspective. And I 
almost am tired of having to address the futurist position. You might be tired of hearing it. Uh, But the view is so prominent within evangelicalism today that I must say something about it uh, before we go on. I'll refer you to previous sermons and to previous classes offered at Emmaus for a detailed explanation as to why I believe it is wrong to view the book of Revelation as being mainly about future and not about the state of affairs in the world today. But for now, I'll simply draw your attention to what the text says and also to its relationship to the passages that have come before it. I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that in verse 5, we are specifically told that the beast, the beast that arose from the sea, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, Revelation 13.5. I've already established in previous sermons that this three and a half year period of time is not to be taken literally, but is symbolic for the time between Christ's first and second comings. This three and a half year period of time is sometimes called 42 months, that is 3.5 years times 12 months. Sometimes it is referred to as 1,260 days, which is 3.5 years times 360 days per year. You say, that sounds strange. Aren't there 365 days per year? But 360 days per year, according to the ancient custom of measuring a year. And sometimes it is referred to as a time, times, and half a time. Here we have one year plus two years plus one half a year. And so we have three and a half years constantly referenced here in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 11 through 13. This three and a half year period of time is symbolic of the period of time where those who belong to Christ will suffer suffer tribulation in the world. And when will the people of God suffer tribulation in the world? Uh, Certainly we should admit by now that it is not in the future only that the people of God will suffer tribulation, but rather they have suffered tribulation in the past, currently in the present, and will also suffer tribulation in the the future. It is a, a, a terribly destructive myth to say that God's people will not experience tribulation in the world. And yet that is the myth that is propagated today. God's people will not experience tribulation. God would never allow his people to suffer tribulation. But Christ himself spoke to his disciples saying, in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, But take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Friends, this is the reality that has been symbolized over and over again in the book of Revelation, but in different ways. On the one hand, God's people will have tribulation. But on the other hand, we are to take courage in Christ because he has overcome the world. This is the situation, preservation in the midst of tribulation, that is portrayed in every scene designated by the time frame of 42 months or 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. I want you to look with me one last time, and I say one last time because here we have the last reference to this period of time in the book of Revelation. I want you to look with me at the five references to this three and a half year period found in Revelation chapters 11 through 13, and I want you to notice the theme. I want you to notice the situation that the text describes. It was in chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, that we were told of a heavenly temple that was measured and protected by God in heaven while the courtyard was left unmeasured and vulnerable upon the earth to the trampling of the nations. Who does the temple represent? The church is the temple. We are to remember that. She is therefore simultaneously perfectly secure in heaven and yet vulnerable to persecution on 
earth. And how long would this situation of preservation through tribulation last? 42 months. After this, we immediately encounter two witnesses. These witnesses, who are also called two lampstands and two olive trees, symbolize the church in her witnessing role. After they fulfilled their task, they were killed, and the nations rejoiced over them, trampled over them, if you will. Uh, But they were raised from the dead and caught up to God. And how long did these witnesses witness? How long did this situation of preservation through tribulation last? They fulfilled their task while suffering persecution for 1,260 days, ultimately being preserved by their God. And then in chapter 12, we were introduced to the woman who gave birth to the male child. She too symbolized God's people in every age. And after she gave birth, we were told that she fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished. The wilderness would be for her a place of testing and tribulation, but also a place of preservation. She would be nourished there. How long would this situation of preservation through tribulation last? The text says, again, 1,000 260 days. Later in chapter 12, we were reintroduced to this woman being nourished in the wilderness to learn more about what she would endure there in that place. And she was pursued by the dragon who attempted to drown her with a flood of lies and deceptions. But she was preserved by God in that wilderness place. And how long did this situation of preservation through tribulation last? She was nourished for a time and times and half a time, Revelation 12, 14. And finally, we come to the very last reference to this symbolic three and a half year period here in 13.5 where we read, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority. And how long would the beast be permitted to do this? We are told again, 42 months, which should take our minds back to the first mention of this three and a half year period where the temple was said to be measured and protected by God in heaven, yet trampled by the nations for 42 months. And so the time in which this beast is active, hear this, this time in which this beast is active is the same time in which the woman and her offspring offspring will be pursued and, and preserved. It is the same period of time in which the witnesses will witness. It is the same period of time in which the temple will both be measured and yet left exposed to the trampling of, of the nations. Do you understand how the book of Revelation works here? It has given us a different vantage point on this same period of time so that we might understand thoroughly what we are to expect in this world, so that we might know what is the nature of the war that we are now experiencing, so that we might endure, so that we might overcome in Christ Jesus. I've presented you with reasons for viewing this period of time as symbolic in previous sermons, and I can't repeat it every time we come to one of these instances. And I've explained where these numbers come from. They come from the Old Testament, book of Daniel, 42 encampments that Israel encountered in the wilderness, Um, also historical events, the defamation of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, and also the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. So I've, I've explained this to you as to why these numbers, this period of time, functions very well to, to serve as a symbol Uh, For a period of time in which God's people, God's temple, the bride of Christ, is going to be assaulted by the enemies of God. It's a beautiful symbol that we have here in the book of Revelation. But I can't repeat uh, these arguments. Uh, Now I simply want to draw your attention to the fact that the book of Revelation recapitulates. It recapitulates. In chapters 11 through 13 alone, I've just showed you these instances, we have looked upon the entire time between Christ's first and second coming, that is the church age, from many different points of view. 
from many different points of view. And so we have the same period of time put in different terms so as to communicate that this is a description of the church age, but viewed from different points of view. So here is the question that I asked originally. When did this beast from the sea appear? Well, we know that it was present in John's day. In the narrative of Revelation, it arose from the sea after Satan was barred from heaven and thrown down to the earth. And when did this happen? It happened when Christ sat down upon his heavenly throne after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Notice this. There is nothing at all in the text that would suggest that this beast will only be present sometime in our future. In the narrative of the book of Revelation, we see this sequence. We see the dragon pursuing the woman. She gives birth to the male child. The child is caught up to his throne where he is seated. Satan is barred from heaven, continues his pursuit of the woman, and then immediately summons these two beasts, the one from the sea and the one from the earth. The meaning is clear. These are going to be the things, the the means by which Satan wages his warfare against the people of God who are left upon earth after the time of Christ's first coming. Nothing in the text whatsoever suggests a 2,000 year or more gap of time. Um, But rather, this beast was present even in John's Day. More can be said, but for now let us simply re- re- recognize um, that this beast from the sea has been present and active in the world at least from the time of Christ's ascension to his heavenly throne and the barring of Satan from heaven. Secondly, we must answer the question, who or what does this beast symbolize? Who or what does this beast symbolize? Uh, the answer is this. The sea beast of Revelation 13 symbolizes political powers that persecute. Political powers that persecute. Notice the description of the beast in verses 1 and 2. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, if we were not familiar with the Old Testament at all, we would just simply take this picture, this this vision of this beast, and we would begin to guess as to what it represents. And I suppose we would just look to the world around us to figure out what exactly this beast represents. But for those familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, uh, we will immediately recognize that this beast is a combination of the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, which was read at the beginning of this sermon Uh, Remember that Daniel, who ministered approximately from 600 to 540 B.C., uh, saw a vision that was very similar to that of John's, where the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. He then describes the beast. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, a second like a bear, and behold, another like a leopard. After this, he saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast that was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stomped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. He, Daniel, considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
later, and here is the significant thing, later in Daniel 7, an interpretation is given concerning the symbolism of these creatures. And we are told in a most direct way that each beast that Daniel saw uh, represented a kingdom that would rise and fall in the future from Daniel's perspective. The fourth kingdom would be far greater and far more fierce than the first three. And though Daniel and his original audience did not know the names of these kingdoms, we do know the names of these kingdoms now that these prophecies have been fulfilled. The beasts of Daniel 7 symbolized the rise and fall of the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and lastly, uh, the Romans. Uh, These kingdoms would oppose God and the people of God, But God would have victory over them and would eventually judge them. More than that, it would be in the time of the fourth kingdom, that is the Roman Empire, that one like a son of man would appear. He would come to the ancient of days and be presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that sound familiar to you? And so we have in the book of Daniel four beasts which represent four successive kingdoms. We have a description of the coming of one like the Son of Man who eventually is seated on his heavenly throne and begins to establish his everlasting kingdom. The book of Revelation, notice, is talking about those exact same things here in Revelation chapters 12 and 13. And We are to recognize that the meaning of the vision of Daniel chapter 7, therefore, is that though powerful kingdoms will rise and fall, and though these kingdoms will indeed war against God and persecute his people, God sits where? He is enthroned in heaven. He is Lord of all creation. He will judge these kingdoms in due time, and he will establish his promised and long-awaited kingdom beginning with the arrival of the Christ and the culminating of the second coming. So just imagine yourself being a, a, a Jew in the midst of Babylon, you know, suffering exile there and to read Daniel's uh, book and the seventh chapter of Daniel in particular. Would you not be greatly comforted? There you are. You're so small. You're so weak. It feels as if the promises of God will never be fulfilled. After all, we have been cast out of our land. We've been abandoned by God. And then you read Daniel's prophecy. And and, and what are you reassured of except this? God is still on his throne. And though these nations be so powerful, and though these nations seem so ferocious, and though you have been trampled by them, God is still seated on his throne. He will bring about his purposes. You have to recognize the meaning of Daniel chapter 7 before you can understand the the, the meaning of Revelation chapter uh, 13. And when we come to Revelation chapter 13, we notice that the beast, the one beast of Revelation chapter 13 is not exactly like any of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7, but is a combination of the four of them. He has elements that are taken from the beasts of Daniel chapter 7 all combined into one. This tips us off to the fact that this beast does not represent one particular kingdom but to all of the political powers used by Satan to persecute the saints throughout the church age. 
Remember that this beast will be active not for a brief time, but for the whole time between Christ's first and second comings. This has already been established. This beast will be active for 42 months or a time's time and half a time. That language also being drawn from Daniel to describe the last days which span from Christ's first coming on to the consummation. And so when the seven churches who were living in Asia Minor in 90 AD received this letter from John and read of the sea beast of Revelation 13, what came to their minds? That's the question. We're assuming that these Christians were indeed familiar with the scriptures, and in particular, Daniel chapter 7. Did they think to themselves, I wonder when this beast will arise sometime in the distant future when we will not be here? The book has already established that this was for them, that this book was given for their benefit, and that they would be blessed if they kept what was in it, you see. The book has already established that what is being revealed were things that were going to take place from the time of John onward. Um, no, instead, when those who were alive in 90 AD read this book for the first time, they undoubtedly thought of Rome. When they read of this beast and the description of it, and when they compared it to the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, they undoubtedly thought, this is a description of the Roman Empire. We feel the presence of this beast right now. They remembered the persecutions of Nero that took place some 30 years earlier, not, not too far in, in their past. They remembered how he sought to devour Christians and how he persecuted Christians, even placing them on stakes in his garden and covering them with tar and lighting them on fire so that his garden might be lit. They remembered that. And without a doubt, when they saw this beast rising up out of the sea, the sea being a place from which Evil emerges often associated with the rising and falling of empires and, and conquering kingdoms. When they, when they read of this description, they thought, this is a description of, of, of Rome. We felt the effect of Nero's persecutions not long ago. They even thought of the persecutions that they were then enduring under the present uh, emperor of Rome, Domitian. Uh, these persecutions were flaring up around them even in their day. They even thought of the opposition that they faced in their hometowns from political powers. Remember, as we studied the letters to the seven churches, some of those letters were addressing troubles that the churches were facing in their hometowns being persecuted by powerful political authorities. So that, uh, that, that situation, that trouble has already been addressed in the letters. And now here, what do we have in Revelation chapter 13 except a symbol of that very thing, the way that the evil one sometimes uses political powers to persecute the people of God. And the same thing can be said for the Christ followers living in every age after Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father. Indeed, from the time of the fall of man, this has been the tactic of the evil one. He has used political powers to persecute the people of God for eons. And this will continue on till the time of the end. It is true that in Revelation 13, the dragon symbolizes those political powers that will arise after the time of Christ's first coming. But I would even argue this, that if, if the Israelites who were in Egypt had access to Revelation chapter 13 and the description of the dragon, if they had access to it there while they were in bondage to Egypt under Pharaoh's thumb, they would have thought, this represents Pharaoh, does it not? And the Egyptians who are now persecuting us. Over the past few weeks, I've been studying John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Lord willing, we will begin a study on that book in the Emmaus Essentials Hour beginning on October 22nd. And I feel almost compelled to fall to my knees and beg you to come to that class. Uh, 
beginning on October 22nd at 9 o'clock. And to bring your children with you, especially your teens or preteens. The book is an allegory of the Christian life. It's filled with very rich spiritual insights. It's very engaging and interesting to read. With with the weather starting to turn cooler, this is what I envision, you know. Uh, Very cold weather outside. Of course, I'm hoping for that. And the people of Emmaus on Sundays, uh, lighting a fire in in their fireplace, if you have a fireplace, in in the evenings. And gathering the family around, if you have family in the home, and, and pulling out a copy of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and beginning to read that wonderful literature. You know, is that wishful thinking? I, I don't know. I think it would be very good for you uh, to, to, um, to engage in, in that study with us beginning on October 22nd. But John Bunyan lived in the 17th century. Uh, he was, to use terminology that is, that is very common today, uh, he was a Reformed Baptist pastor. Uh, he was not called that then, but that's what we would call him now. And he was a Reformed Baptist pastor in a time that it was, when it was very dangerous to be a Reformed Baptist pastor. Sometimes I think it might be dangerous to be a Reformed Baptist pastor today. I don't know, but not to the same extent, certainly. Uh, he wrote most of the Pilgrim's Progress from prison. Uh, John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison because he would not conform to the Church of England but rather continued to preach without a license as a nonconformist. And at that time, the church and state were not separated, but they were combined. And the church would often use the power of the state to persecute those who would not conform to their view. The Roman Catholic Church did the same thing to even greater a degree in the days following the Protestant Reformation. Many Christians were killed by, by Rome as they made use of the power of of the state, and, and very many examples can be given from history where those with political power persecute the people of God. And ironically, sometimes it is even those who claim to be Christian who are guilty of such things. This is true in the past, it is true today all around the world, and it will be true on to the consummation. One of the tactics of the evil one is to use political and worldly powers to put pressure on Christ's church so that she might compromise in her faith. Do you see it? And so this beast is not about something that will come in the future. It is something that is here now. It is a power that is here now and that has been here since the fall of man. The evil one has always waged war against God's faithful in this way. Some some say that the beast from the sea in Revelation 13 is to be identified with the person whom John calls the Antichrist in First and Second John. You've heard of the Antichrist, haven't you? Uh, the term is only found in First and Second John. And, and some believe that the beast that arises from the sea should be identified with this figure called the Antichrist in First and Second John. Some have also made a connection between the sea beast and the person that Paul calls the man of sin. And... What I want to say here is actually this view is not altogether wrong. So long as we remember that John, who spoke of the coming of the, uh, the Antichrist, who would arise at the end of time, also said that many Antichrists were already present even in his day. Listen to his words as he speaks of the Antichrist. He wrote, children, it is the last hour. When was it the last hour? 
This is John writing in the first century. Children, it is the last hour. What does that mean? That the Lord is going to return right, what, right now? Was that his expectation? No, it, it's this, that this is the end of time. This is the end of the ages. These are the last days. In other words, there's nothing after this except the coming of Christ and the consummation. Premillennialists should take note of that fact, by the way, that according to the New Testament, these are the last days. There are not days after these days that we are expecting to see, with the exception of the coming of Christ, the consummation, the new heavens, and the new earth, which will be much different from the age in which we now live. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The the same already and not yet principle can be seen in Paul's teaching concerning the so-called man of sin. Paul wrote these words in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. He said, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work now. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So in Paul's words, the lawless man of sin will come at the end of time and will be struck down by Jesus at his second coming. But even in his day, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. And so in John's day, many antichrists had already come, but the antichrist would not come until the end of time. And so it is with the mystery of lawlessness in Paul. We see this, this principle of already and not yet. The mystery of lawlessness is already here, but the lawless one, the man of sin, will someday come and Christ will judge him personally. To use John's terminology, uh, many antichrists have come and are already here. They're already present in the world. But there will be an antichrist, the antichrist, who will arise and Christ will judge him in a personal way, directly. I think it is right that we view the beast of Revelation 13 in the same way. This beast was present in the world even as John wrote the book of Revelation. This beast is present in the world now. And this beast representing political powers that persecute will indeed be present until the Lord returns at which time he will be fully and finally judged by the Lord at his return. Revelation 19, 17 through 21 describes this event. Listen carefully. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. What is being described to us here, do you think? What's being described to us here is the second coming of Christ and the judgment poured out upon the wicked who are alive upon the earth at that time. We might call it the Battle of Armageddon, if you want to use that terminology. That is what is being described here. And I saw, this is what John says, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, namely Christ and his people. Notice, what does John see? He sees the beast, and who is with the beast except armies? 
After all, that is what the beast symbolizes, political powers that persecute. There is this great war that is going to take place between the beast and his armies, the kings of this earth, and Christ and his people. And the beast, we are told, was captured, and with it the false prophet who, is, who, who, in, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, that is the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth uh, of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh, Revelation 19, 17 through 21. So what is described here except the presence of this beast even on that last day? And what is done to that beast? He is defeated finally and fully. He is cast into the lake of fire. A fire that burns with sulfur. And so this beast was present in John's day, is here now, and will be present at the end of time. And I think it is actually appropriate for us to, to make some connection between this beast of Revelation 13 and the Antichrist or the man of sin that um, Paul and John speak of, though the th- those three things are not uh, necessarily identical. And so we have a few questions remaining, and I'm going to answer them quickly. The third question is this, where does this beast have authority? The answer is that this beast has authority over all the earth. Look at verse 7. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Notice the word allowed. Who allows it? It must be God who does. He permits it. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the Lamb who was slain. The answer to the question, where does this beast have authority, is this beast has authority over over all the earth. uh, Over all the earth. Fourthly, what does this beast do? We have already indicated that the beast represents political powers that persecute, but more is said than this, the beast also seeks to deceive people and to lead them to false worship as he blasphemes the name of God. Look at verses 3 through 6. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell on the earth. What does the text mean when it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast? What exactly does this signify? I'll say three things about this quickly. One, there does seem to be a kind of imitation of Christ that is taking place here. I want you to remember how Christ was described way back in chapter 5, verse 6, as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Remember this image of Christ? He looked as if he had been slain, but here he is, alive, risen from death. Here the beast seems to have recovered from a mortal wound, it is as if, as if the beast presents itself as an alternative to Christ, saying, trust in me and not in him. Do, do you see it? Okay. There seems to be an imitation of Christ taking place here. Two, I think it is interesting to note that 
though the emperor Nero, who was a most wicked man, uh, committed suicide in 68 AD, um, there was, even up to that time of the writing of the book of Revelation, a widespread rumor throughout Rome that Nero was not really dead, but had fled to Parthia instead, and that he would return leading the Parthian army to conquer Rome and to reestablish his rule. Do you see the similarity here uh, between the description of this beast and the circumstance with Nero? Uh, and so here was a head that, that had a mortal wound, but, but looked as, it, as if there was a kind of resurrection. And then th- there was this widespread rumor about Nero, th- this wicked man that, uh, though he had committed suicide in 68 AD, he really wasn't dead. He had fled to Parthia, and he was going to return to kind of reestablish his empire. This was on the minds of a lot of Romans in that day. They thought it was going to happen, that he was going to lead a horde of soldiers in and, and reestablish his rule. It's possible that the Nero myth, as it is called, stands behind the image of the mortally wounded head which was healed. Uh, I think the argument for this view will be strengthened next week as we consider the number 666, which is probably symbolic of the emperor Nero to some extent. Keep that in mind. But three, I wonder if the reference to the mortally wounded but healed head has something to do with the way in which kings rise and then fall after which another king rises to take his place. The same can be said, of course, for kingdoms. Kingdoms rise and fall, and then another, another rises again. It seems almost as if these kings and kingdoms, the succession of them, as if they are immortal in some way, as if they have a kind of resurrection power. And I think this is a particularly important observation, especially as we remember what was said at the very end of that Daniel passage that was read at the, end of the, at the beginning of the sermon, how how the reign of these kingdoms came to an end, but yet their life was prolonged for a time. Do you you remember hearing that? Um, It is no wonder that men and women are deceived to trust in these kingdoms and to worship the gods of these kingdoms instead of Christ. These kingdoms, think of them now, do seem to be so powerful and almost invincible Think of the kingdoms of the world even today. Think of the United States of America. Think of China and their succession of, 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 um, of emperors, if you will. Um, th- think of all of that. Just, just think, they, they seem like they will never come to an end. And certainly we as Christians, what chance do we have to stand against them? If they decide to, to make an end of us, they could make an end of us in a heartbeat. Or, you know, so it's no wonder that, that men and women are, are led to worship the gods of these kingdoms instead of Christ, they, they do seem so powerful and invincible, especially when compared to the kingdom of God in this world, which is so very humble and small and comparatively weak. Uh, compare the church of God in America today with the power and might of the United States of America, right? The church seems very weak and vulnerable, and the political power seems so strong God's word, though, is here providing us with a different perspective on that matter. God's word is providing us with a different perspective on that matter. Notice what the beast does. He leads men and women to worship the dragon and not Christ. Verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast also, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Why is it that men and women are compelled to, to worship 
things of the world, particularly these powerful nations and those who rule over them? Why are they compelled to put their trust there instead of in Christ? Because from their perspective, they, they say, who is like the beast? Who could even, who could stand? Who can fight against these powerful political forces that are in the world today? And notice that the beast also blasphemes, blasphemes against God and against his dwelling. It is well known that the Roman emperors by the time of Domitian made a habit of demanding that worship be offered to them as if they were gods. This is the height of blasphemy. Political powers contend in this direction. The history of the world is filled with examples of this. So imagine yourself being a Christian in one of these seven churches. And one of the things you're struggling with most is, will I go once a year to offer a pinch of incense upon the altar as an act of worship up to the Roman emperor will i do it put yourself there if you put yourself there i think you're better able to understand what is being symbolized here in this text and the the message of this text which ultimately will be don't do it but persevere and endure in the faith why does the beast do what he does lastly and very briefly the answer will be um, that the beast does what he does being empowered by the dragon to do it The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are instruments or ministers of the dragon who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The fact that the first dragon looks, the first beast looks just like the dragon tips us off to this fact. And the fact that the second beast rising from the earth speaks like the dragon shows us the uh, continuity between the two things. Also, we see that the goal of the beasts here is to bring worship not to Christ but instead to the dragon himself. Brothers and sisters, how should this affect us today? How should this affect us? Actually, the text provides us with the application, and we should not ignore it. It's stated in a most direct way. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is your application. Here is the application we must make. Uh, The meaning is this. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world, isn't he? He is enthroned. That is the message that will continually be brought to us in the book of Revelation. He has decreed And will providentially permit even the suffering of his people. We must remember this. And we are to trust God in this world. That he is able to keep us. Even in the midst of persecution. Even in the face of death. He is able to keep us. And to preserve us. And to nourish us. And to bring us safely home. We are to therefore endure. Which means to bear up under difficult circumstances. We are to preserve persevere in the face in the faith even in the face of extreme persecution i i really do believe that one of the reasons christians today in our country have such a difficult time properly interpret uh, interpreting the book of revelation is that we have not experienced much in the way of persecution uh, it's largely foreign to us we read about it sometimes don't we But to many Christians in our land, it seems like something that belongs to a bygone era 
It seems like something that we might endure in the future, but concerning the present, we have not experienced much in the way of persecution. And I do believe that if we knew persecution, if we knew persecution, the book of Revelation would make more sense to us. So that when we pick up the book of Revelation and read chapter 13, we would be much more uh, eager and quick to say, that power is present now. That power is right here, and we are threatened by it even today. Uh, This ridiculous teaching that God will never allow his saints to suffer tribulation really does make the book of Revelation hard to understand. If we have made up our mind that God will not allow his people to suffer tribulation, uh, then we're going to have to find a place for the book of Revelation, and we might as well push it off into the future because it's not what we experience now, especially in this in this land. But instead, the book of Revelation describes the bride of Christ under assault, and it calls the Christian to endure and to persevere in faith, trusting always in Christ. I would encourage you, uh, brothers and sisters, to buy yourself a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and to read it. Have you ever heard of it? Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's been republished under different titles today. Um, but you can find the old original version probably for free online even. Read it, but what does it describe? It describes the persecution of saints uh, from the time of Christ onward throughout the history of the church. Um, read it and, 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 and recognize how wicked this world can be and how vicious political powers can be in seeking to put down God's people. See how jealous political powers and kingdoms can be for the allegiance of their citizens and, if you will, the worship of their citizens and how opposed they can be to anyone who would want to say that so-and-so is Lord instead of them. Read these accounts of martyrdom. Go to persecution.com, which is the website of Voice of the Martyrs, and, and look around and hear of instances of persecution that are happening all over the world today. Subscribe to Heart Cry Missionary Society's newsletter so that you might be aware of the difficulties that um, are encountered in world missions today. And you know what, beyond that, simply grow in your understanding of church history. If, if you do these things, you will not be so quick to believe that that view which says that the beast from the sea will arrive only in the last three and a half years of human history and the church will be raptured by then for God would never allow his people to suffer tribulation. It's a ridiculous idea that needs to be abandoned. Brothers and sisters, we should pray for the persecuted church around the world today, shouldn't we? Uh, We do have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are suffering persecution of the most intense kind And we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are threatened by political powers with economic sanctions, with imprisonment, and even death, that they would indeed do what this passage is calling them to do, to bear up under the sufferings and to remain true to Christ, preserving, being preserved in the faith to the very end. And I think we should do some soul-searching of our own. And we should ask ourselves the simple questions, would I bear up under the pressure if it came? Would I bear up under the pressure if it came? Of course, we can never know the answer to that question ahead of time. Uh, Peter thought he knew, didn't he? I will never deny you, Lord. And then when some servant girl asks him, Do you know this Jesus? I do not know him. I was never with him. So we should not be arrogant as we do this soul searching, but we should do the soul searching and we should say, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Make us faithful servants of yours in this world. Even if things 
were to be very, very difficult for us as Christ followers. Secondly, I would like to say a quick word about politics. It seems to me that there is a ditch on both sides of the road into which Christians may fall as it pertains to our view of politics. On the left side, there is the ditch of naivete. That's what I'm calling it. Here the Christian has too high a view of government and politics and assumes that men are basically good and trusts that when these basically good men gain power, they will do what is good for all. You see how that is naive to think in that way? Ask actually the history of the world and the scriptures themselves tell us that men are not basically good, but tend to be very self-serving. And so we should beware of a political power. Uh, We should recognize that uh, though there are some good men and women in politics, I speak in relative terms, of course, uh, we should not forget that governments and rulers have historically tended towards self-service and oppression over time. We should keep that in mind. But the ditch on the right side of the road is the ditch of extreme pessimism and disengagement. And here the Christian Uh, assumes that every government and every political entity is a manifestation of the beast that rises out of the sea. Here the Christian assumes the worst always. So you're involved in the government, you're the Antichrist then, aren't you? Naturally, you must be. Uh, That is not what the book of Revelation is here teaching. Uh, This is an unbiblical view. It is also a view that is inconsistent with history. Thanks be to God, not not all governments persecute God's people. God, by His common grace, has allowed there to exist relatively good government systems that make for peace and leave room for the true worship of God. Uh, By the mercy of God, some do facilitate these freedoms. And I think we we find ourselves living in such a society today. Our our government is far from perfect. We all know that. Uh, But praise be to God, we live in a society with a government somewhat like the one described in Romans chapter 13, where evil is largely restrained and good is largely rewarded, and we as his people are free to, um, to worship God according to truth. We should give thanks to God for these things. Brothers and sisters, remember that we are commanded to pray for those who govern. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We need to pray for those who govern over us. On the one hand, we should not be naive concerning the nature of man. On the other hand, we should not always assume the worst, that every uh, new political leader is somehow a manifestation of the beast of Revelation chapter uh, 13. We are to respect those who govern over us. Pay to all what is owed to them, Christ says. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What was Christ's view then of uh, the governing authorities? Uh, These are actually the words of Paul, excuse me. But that we should respect them. We should give respect to those who govern over us. Lastly, Let us not live according to the appearance of things, but according to the truth revealed for us in God's word. We are to walk not according to sight, but we are to walk by faith. 
It is true when we perceive the world with our natural eyes and when we look out upon the powers that are around us, the governing powers seem to be so strong and so invincible. But what is being revealed to us here in God's word, particularly in the book of Revelation, is that no, there is a power that is far, far, far greater than the most powerful man on earth. He is our Lord and he will bring all things to a conclusion in due time and he will judge and he will preserve his people even in the midst of persecution. So let us not be tempted then to abandon Christ, but to walk with him faithfully and to the very end. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Brothers and sisters, let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do give us wisdom as we walk in this world. Help us to see things as they really are, as your word has revealed it. Father, indeed, Christians, even today, even in this moment, find themselves living in very different circumstances. Some live in a society at peace. Some are under severe persecution, even as we speak. Lord, I thank you that your word speaks to us and to them. And your word encourages us as well as them, as it calls us to faithful endurance. Lord, we are not threatened so strongly by this sea beast of Revelation 13 as some are around the world today. Maybe we will be someday, Lord. Prepare us for that. Make us to be faithful, even if we are. Lord, but we give you thanks that we are not, that you have provided for us a wonderful society in which we can live and freely worship. We give you thanks for that, Lord. We pray that this society would be blessed and that it would operate according to principles found in your word and that these freedoms would be preserved, Lord. We pray for those who are persecuted, even now, that you would strengthen them, that they would be encouraged as they are being assaulted in the most direct way by this beast. Lord, I pray that they would see the beast for what it is and that they would be faithful to you, Christ. You are far greater. You will slay this beast with the word. May they see it and believe it and stay true to you. Lord, as we continue our study of the book of Revelation, we're going to be presented with other powers that the evil one uses. Certainly, We are assaulted by them more strongly. Give us wisdom, Lord, to walk faithfully with you in this world today. May we bring you all glory, honor, and praise. We say it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen.